0: On April 6, 1917, five days before the Major League Baseball season began, the United States declared war on Germany. A month later, the Selective Service Act was passed, establishing a national draft. How these elements would affect the game of baseball was yet to be seen, but there was an immediate impact in the crowds. Attendance across the leagues dropped by 20 percent from 1916 to 1917. Meanwhile, contracts that had been signed during the Federal League years were now expiring. To prevent star players from jumping leagues, organized baseball owners had taken to giving out more money in 1914 and 15 than they ever had before. Now that the Federal League was gone, and Major League Baseball's monopoly had been reestablished, wages were falling. This made the players unhappy. Tension between players and owners grew as these issues bubbled to the surface. All the while, on the field, the White Sox dominated the American League. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and today on Chicago's Civil War, the Cubs and the White Sox take a break from playing each other as the two teams take turns winning the pennant. Experts Jacob Pomrenke and Richard Lindbergh will help take a gander inside the scandal that nearly broke baseball when the White Sox threw the 1919 World Series. And Sean Devaney will also join the show to look at the Cubs team that may have had the same idea in a war-shortened 1918. Let's get started. Since winning the World Series in 1906, Charles Comiskey had been pining to get back. He brought back the same core the next few years but came up just short, including losing the pennant on the last day of the 1908 season. As the White Sox descended into mediocrity, the desire to get back to the World Series consumed Comiskey he spared no expense in trying to build a new contender. With the calendar turning to 1917, he officially severed ties with the last member of the World Series team, releasing Ed Walsh, who had fought gamely through injuries the past four seasons, but couldn't fight any longer. At least not in Chicago. It was a new era of White Sox baseball, and this one didn't resemble the hitless wonders so much as the Cubs team that had dominated the city and the National League a decade earlier. In 1917, the White Sox had a star at nearly every position. Hired guns Eddie Collins and Joe Jackson were as good as advertised, but the homegrown talent stole some of the spotlight. Outfielder Happy Felsch led the team in batting average, Buck Weaver was turning into one of the top third basemen in the game, and at just 24 years old, future Hall of Famer Ray Schalk was already a team leader behind the plate. The White Sox led the American League in runs scored in 1917, but their pitching was just as impressive. They also paced the AL in ERA, led by Eddie Seacott, who had the best year of his career, winning 28 games with a 153 ERA. Behind him in the rotation were Red Faber, Lefty Williams, and Reb Russell, as good a supporting cast as there was in the game. The Sox didn't get off to the start they were hoping for, hovering around the 500 mark a month into the season. At one point in early May, they were no hit on back-to-back days. That woke them up. They won 19 of their next 22 games and never looked back. The Boston Red Sox had been the team to beat in the American League. They won both the pennant and the World Series in 1915 and 16, but the White Sox left them in the dust, finishing nine games up on their closest rivals. They finished the year with a 154 mark, still the only time in franchise history that Chicago's Southside team has won 100 games. In the World Series, just the second that the White Sox ever played in, and their first since 1906, the pale host jumped out to a commanding 2-0 lead at home behind the dominant pitching of Eddie Seacott and Red Faber, each of whom threw a complete game. Then the top offense in baseball went uncharacteristically silent. The Sox were shut out in back-to-back games in New York by the host Giants, leading to a somber train ride back to Chicago for Game 5. 27,000-plus fans showed up to Comiskey Park for what turned out to be the best game of the series. Decked out in patriotic uniforms with a red, white, and blue Sox logo that had been made special for the series, the White Sox gave the Giants a taste of what they had been doing to the Cubs in postseason series for years. They fell behind in the top of the first inning and trailed 5-2 in the bottom of the seventh. That's when Chick Gandil turned the game on its ear with a two-run double. He scored on an error later in the inning, tying the game. Then in the bottom of the 8th, the stars shone for the White Sox. Eddie Collins, Joe Jackson, and Happy Felsch hit consecutive RBI singles to give the White Sox an 8-5 win and pull them within a game of a world title. Back in New York for Game 6, the Sox cruised. They scored the first three runs and rode a red Faber complete game to the deciding victory. It was Faber's third win of the series, and it clinched the second World Series win for the Southsiders. They didn't figure to be sitting on two for long, though, Just about the whole team was primed to return the next year, and it looked like a dynasty was brewing. The Cubs' 1917 season was the inverse of the White Sox. They started hot, winning 22 of their first 31 games, before falling off a cliff. They finished the year at 74-80 in fifth place in the National League, their second straight season in the second division. Like his counterpart on the south side, Cubs owner Charles Wiegman was a prideful man, and one who wasn't tight with a buck when it meant giving his team a chance to improve. After two successful years in the Federal League, it pained Wiegman to lose with the frequency he had in his first two seasons with the Cubs. So going into the 1918 campaign, he made the biggest trade in franchise history to that point, sending a couple of low-level talents along with a record $55,000 cash to the Phillies for Bill Killefer and Grover Cleveland Alexander. Killifer was a nice pickup, a well-respected veteran catcher, but the real coup was Alexander. Over the previous four years, he had averaged 30 wins a season. Keep in mind that in the modern era, that number has only been reached 21 times total. It was Alexander's average for four years. There was no question that this was the best pitcher in the National League, and the Cubs were getting him for a song. There was a method to the Phillies' madness. Like most teams outside of Chicago, the Phillies were cutting spending. Baseball was surrounded by the murky waters of the Great War. Attendance was down and budgets were tight, but 1917 was just preamble. The 1918 season proved to be one of the most challenging the sport would ever see. The draft hadn't had a huge impact on big league baseball in 1917, but as the war raged on in Europe, that was getting set to change. That in fact is one of the reasons the Phillies were willing to give up on their best pitcher. Alexander was 30 years old and unmarried, a sure candidate to be drafted into the army. Sure enough, just three starts into his 1918 season, Alexander was told to report to Fort Funston in Kansas. The star hurler did not throw another pitch that year. Back on the field, the Cubs were actually very fortunate in 1918. Alexander was a big loss, but he was their only regular to depart for military service. The White Sox, on the other hand, had a disastrous season. Just a year earlier, they seemed to be in position to dominate the American League for years to come. Now their team was a mess as the war took its toll on them along with the rest of the league. Some owners had been calling for the season to be cancelled from the start, but those voices were ultimately shouted down. The schedule was changed but just slightly, reducing from 154 games to 140. While they played, ball clubs did their best to support the military effort. It became routine starting in 1917 to see players practicing military drills on the field before games, often using bats to stand in for rifles. Charles Comiskey vowed to donate 10% of his gate receipts to the Red Cross. On July 1st of 1918, the United States Secretary of War Newton Baker issued the Work or Fight Order. It stated that all men aged 21 to 30 must either be working in an essential war-related job or prepare to be drafted. The baseball administration fought to get the sport recognized as essential work, but as the body count piled up overseas and the war raged on with no signs of slowing down, it was becoming increasingly difficult to convince the government that grown men playing games was essential. By August, the White Sox had lost star players Eddie Collins and Red Faber, among others, to the military. Perhaps more damaging to the team was the number of players who went to find essential jobs. Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, and Lefty Williams went to work in naval shipyards. Swede Risberg departed the team, telling the media that he was off to war. But instead, he signed up for work at a shipyard too. This was the great controversy of 1918. Joe Jackson was the first big name to do it, but it became commonplace for players to avoid the war by leaving professional baseball to find work that exempted them from the draft. These draft jumpers were largely scorned by the media and their reputations suffered. They were labeled deserters, or sometimes, slackers. Charles Comiskey was at the forefront of the criticism. I don't consider them fit to play on my ball club, he said. I would gladly lose my whole team if the players wished to do their duty to their country, but I hate to see any ball players, particularly my own, go to shipyards to avoid military service. Comiskey threatened not to take the players back when they returned. Jackson and the others did put in an honest week's work at the shipyards, but that's not what everyone saw. They saw these ballplayers joining semi-pro teams for their companies and playing in weekend factory leagues. That didn't sit well with the media or the general public. Amidst all the controversy, the White Sox had a lost season. Without their main cast, they finished 10 games below 500 and saw only 195,000 fans come through the turnstiles at Comiskey Park, by far their lowest total ever. At the end of July, Newton Baker had officially ruled that baseball was not to be exempt from the work or fight order. By Labor Day, all eligible men must either be enlisted or working essential jobs. Organized baseball had fought to get their season in, but it just wasn't going to work. On the fly, they amended their schedule to conclude on September 2nd, a month earlier than planned. They did get one dispensation. For any player on a World Series team, the deadline to enlist was pushed back to September 15th. That meant the Cubs players had two extra weeks. That's right, the Cubs. At the beginning of the season, it was generally believed that if Chicago's Northside team had any shot at making a run at the pennant, it was going to be because of their acquired ace, Grover Cleveland Alexander. Instead, Alexander departed after three starts, but the rest of the team took advantage of the thinned-out league to run away with the flag, finishing with an 84-45 record, ten and a half games ahead of second place. They were led by pitcher Hippo Vaughn, who ranked first in the league in wins, ERA, innings pitched, and strikeouts. On offense, rookie shortstop Charlie Holicker starred with a 316 batting average, and Fred Merkel led the way with 65 RBIs. Yes, the same Fred Merkel who forgot to touch second base for the 1908 Giants. He recovered from his rookie gaffe and played a solid 14 years in the majors, including four with the Cubs. It was a star crossed career for Merkel, though. He played in five total World Series, but never won one. 1918 was the Cubs' first World Series appearance in eight years, and the reward was a date with the Boston Red Sox, who had already won two of the last three titles. The Red Sox won the pennant on the strength of their mighty pitching staff, but the Southpaw, who may have been their ace, didn't really want to pitch anymore. 23-year-old Babe Ruth had begun to play outfield part-time, and even though he only appeared in 95 of his team's 124 games, he led the league with 11 home runs. But this was still the dead ball era, and a strong pitcher was valued much more highly than a strong hitter, so Boston manager Ed Barrow forced Ruth back to the mound. He tended not to start his slugger in the field when the Red Sox were facing a left-handed pitcher. Knowing that, Cubs skipper Fred Mitchell had an ace up his sleeve. Two aces, actually. Lefty Tyler and Hippo Vaughn. Both left-handers. They started every game of the series. That kept Babe Ruth on the bench except in games that he pitched. Ruth was still a handful on the mound. He won both of his series starts, but the Cubs pitchers fought exhaustion and were excellent as well. The team ERA for the series was 1.04. They never allowed more than three runs in a game and never lost by more than one. But they did lose by exactly one, four times, and dropped the series in six. The entire series was played in the shadow of war. To cut down on travel, the first three games were played in Chicago and the last three in Boston. The Cubs moved their home games to Comiskey Park because it could hold bigger crowds, but they scarcely needed it. There weren't any sellouts. Most able-bodied males were in the military, not at the ballpark. During the seventh-inning stretch of Game 1 at Comiskey, struck by patriotism, a band began to play the Star-Spangled Banner. Fans joined in and sang along, and it became a routine for the rest of the series. After Game 6, the Red Sox celebration was muted, as it seemed that everybody was happy the season was over and ready to move on. Adding to the subdued celebration was the reduced gate receipts. The winner's share was just $1,100 per player, and the losers got $671. This was a far cry from 1917 when the White Sox made over $3,500 apiece, and the losing Giants got $2,500. There were several reasons for the lower shares. For one thing, the games were sparsely attended compared to previous World Series. For another, a new rule had been put in place, spreading some of the money to the second, third, and fourth place teams in each league. On top of that, ticket prices were lowered to accommodate the wartime economy, and a percentage of ticket sales were donated to war-related charities. Prior to Game 5, the players decided that they wouldn't tolerate the lesser incentives. As game time approached, no one took the field. Instead, representatives from both teams met with the National Commission and demanded higher pay. The Commission wouldn't budge. In the stands, the crowd was getting restless. They hadn't been told why the game wasn't starting. Extra police were called in to prevent a riot. Finally, after an hour, the players decided to suit up and play the game. They hadn't gotten what they asked for, but they recognized how bad it would look with a war on if they were caught grousing about money. The last two games were played as scheduled, but the fractious relationship between the players and magnets at this point was clear. Players wanted more money, and there was more than one way to get it.
1: While this war was going on, you know, you had these guys out there playing the game with, with bats and balls. It didn't look very good. And a lot of them were going to be shipping off after that series. Nobody knew if baseball was going to be back on in 1919. Nobody knew uh, if baseball was going to be back on ever again. So, you know, there was uh, there was so much uncertainty when that World Series was played because of the World War going on that there was certainly plenty of incentive there for players to accept some money to lose some of these
0: games. That's the voice of Sean Devaney. You may remember him as our Federal League expert. He also wrote a book on the 1918 World Series and the persistent rumors that everything was not on the level. Specifically, the belief is that certain Cubs were paid to lose the series. No evidence has ever been found to prove that the series was fixed, but there were enough plays that would have raised suspicious fans' eyebrows. In the early days of Major League Baseball, game fixing was not uncommon. If the Cubs did throw the 18 Series, they likely weren't the first team to do it.
1: There's no question that there were others. There were plenty of situations where gamblers approached players uh, and the ones we heard about uh, are the ones where players said, no, the thing that we didn't hear about that we don't hear about that remained covered up is the ones where players said yes, because they had plenty of incentive to keep that a secret. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that there were other World Series that that at the very least had been tinkered with.
0: Devaney has also cited 1912, 14, and 17 as series that may have been tampered with, whether it was the whole series or just individual players or games. And there are many examples of it happening in the regular season. So the question remains: Did the Cubs throw the 1918 series?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that they did, and you know certainly that something that uh, uh, that rumors at the time held that they did.
0: Whether the series was fixed or not, there was no question that gambling was ingrained in the fabric of professional baseball. The issue took center stage in 1919, but at the end of the 18 series, nobody knew if there would be a 1919 World Series. Nobody knew if there would be a 1919 season. Baseball was off until after the war, and in September of 18, the war didn't appear to be coming to a close. But some key victories for the Allies in late 1918 brought about a sudden resolution. In November, the war was over, and baseball owners were ready to start the process of resurrecting the game. In the short term, there was another stumbling block. The 1918 World Series had been moved up to September as a wartime necessity, but it turned out to be extremely lucky. By October, the Spanish flu had spread through the United States, forcing all public events to be canceled in Chicago and Boston, among other cities. If the baseball season hadn't ended early, the World Series may have had to be canceled, As far as the White Sox were concerned, the biggest impact of the influenza pandemic may have been the likely affliction of star pitcher Red Faber. Faber's battle with the flu led to significant weight loss. He was out of shape and fatigued for much of the 1919 season, leading to nagging injuries and making him ineffective throughout the year. The White Sox were also without Red Russell, who saw his career end due to injuries. Otherwise, the full complement of players returned for 1919, Even the players who jumped to the shipyards, who Comiskey vowed not to take back, had returned. In this post-war America, all was forgiven. Owners were afraid that the combination of the flu and lingering negative feelings from the war would keep fans from the ballparks, so they shortened the season by 14 games, the equivalent of two weeks' pay. But they needn't have worried. The public was so thrilled that the fighting was over that attendance records were shattered all over baseball. The White Sox averaged nearly 9,000 fans per game as they battered their opponents on their way to a second pennant in three years. Their opponent for the World Series was the Cincinnati Reds, who easily won the National League for their first league championship. With four weeks left in the season and the Reds appearing to be a shoe-in for the pennant, team president Gary Herman proposed a change to a best-of-nine World Series format. The Reds' ballpark didn't have enough room to accommodate the demand he had already received for tickets, so he wanted an extra home game. It was easy to sell most owners on the idea. More fans through the turnstiles meant more money all around the league. Charles Comiskey was opposed, but the rule change passed. There may have been a more subtle reason for the change. The White Sox were favored heading into the series, but Cincinnati did have one clear advantage, the depth of their pitching staff. With Red Faber out, the White Sox had only two reliable moundsmen. The Reds had five. An extended series would give them a big edge. The series began on October 1st, and from the jump, it was all Reds. They took the first two games at home before the White Sox got a boost from rookie hurler Dickie Kerr. Kerr's complete game shutout gave the Sox their first win of the series, but they dropped the next two. Kid Gleason, who had replaced Pants Rowland as manager before the season, was flummoxed. It's the best team that ever went into a World Series, but it isn't playing the baseball that won the pennant for me. I don't know what's the matter, the players don't know what's the matter, but the team has not shown itself thus far. It's worth noting that the Cincinnati ball club that had taken a commanding lead was no slouch. Even though the White Sox were betting favorites heading into the series, the Reds had actually finished eight games better during the season. Their pitching was as deep as advertised, and the only thing keeping the White Sox alive was their unexpected star pitcher Dickie Kerr. Kerr gave the Sox their second win in Game 6. This time he pitched 10 innings to keep the series alive, though the Sox trailed four games to two. They won again in Game 7, and that got the local press talking. They reminded the public that the White Sox had overcome a three-game deficit before in the 1912 City Series. They had overcome a 3-1 to deficit in the 1914 City Series. Did they have it in them to overcome another big deficit? No, as it turned out. They fell behind the Reds 4-0 in the first inning of Game 8, and it was all over. With a 10-5 victory, the Reds were World Series champions. The series had been straightforward enough, but the aftermath was anything but. More than 100 years later, historians are still trying to figure out what exactly happened. We've got one of those historians right here.
2: My name is Jacob Pomrenke, and I am the chair of Sabre's Black Sox Scandal Research Committee.
0: Pomrenke has been at the forefront of trying to clear up many of the myths associated with the famed Black Sox scandal. This story has been told countless times in much more detail than I have time to delve into, so let's just go over the absolute basics. Eight White Sox players were paid by gamblers to lose the 1919 series, including star pitchers Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams, who each lost two games. It has long been assumed that the impetus for the scandal was the mistreatment of the players by the penurious Charles Comiskey. Why don't we make that the first bit of confusion that Jacob Pomrenke clears up?
2: The idea that he was just... Kind of this Scrooge character and the supervillain of the Black Sox story does not hold up to scrutiny. There's really very little evidence that the uh, Black Sox players engaged in the, the fix to throw the World Series because of Charles Comiskey. He was a factor in covering up what happened. And, you know, he had some opportunities to help clean up the game that he always seemed to look the other way, just like other baseball officials. But he was not the supervillain of the story.
0: In fact, the White Sox had one of the highest payrolls in all of baseball in 1919. Both Joe Jackson and Eddie Seacott, two of the primary game fixers, were the second highest paid players at their positions in the American League. So if not Comiskey, who is most to blame for the scandal? Historian Richard Lindbergh has a thought. I think the main factor was it was the simple greed of these players. The fix was not, as is commonly believed, initiated by the gamblers, but by the players. They had seen crooked baseball around the league for years, so there didn't seem to be much risk. After all, it had already been widely rumored that there was a fix in 1918.
2: One factor that did influence the Black Sox scandal is that the White Sox players had heard rumors that the Cubs were on the take and that they had accepted a bribe of about $10,000 apiece to throw the World Series. So uh, even if there's no evidence that the Cubs actually threw the World Series in 1918, some of the White Sox players might have believed they did, and that may have influenced their
0: decision. The bottom line is that gambling was everywhere at this stage of baseball's history. At the ballpark, in the hotels, in the newspapers, players were well aware that a fix like this was possible, and it wasn't hard to facilitate. The ills of gambling in the player ranks, was a problem baseball failed to deal with going back to the 1870s, and they ultimately paid the price for that negligence with the Black Sox scandal. Both Lindbergh and Pomeranke have hit on the crux of the matter, which is that gambling had always been in baseball, and the powers that be continually turned a blind eye to it, despite numerous opportunities to weed it out. Going back to the turn of the century, the disreputable crowds at National League games are one of the key factors that allowed the American League to flourish in the first place. Ban Johnson had vowed to clean up the game and found a lot of support in his stance. But Pomeranke says that it was all just for show.
2: Even though Ben Johnson, the American League president, uh, made some public proclamations that the American League would not tolerate gambling, that never happened. That was always part of the game. It was part of the culture of baseball. You could go to American League ballparks just as you could go to National League ballparks and bet on what was happening on the field.
0: When the White Sox lost the 1919 World Series, it was not immediately assumed that the series had been crooked. Sure, there were some whispers, many of them from Hugh Fullerton, the famed Chicago sports writer. It was revealed later that Charles Comiskey had been informed something might be amiss before the first game. He claimed to have reported what he heard to National League President John Heidler and tried to convince him to stop the series. Comiskey, though, would not talk to AL boss Ben Johnson. The two men, once the best of friends, had seen their relationship go through ups and downs over the previous 15 years, but it was over for good after Johnson ruled against the White Sox in a dispute with the Yankees over the contract to pitcher Jack Quinn in 1918. For the rest of their lives, Comiskey and Johnson were not on speaking terms. Now their rivalry may have prevented any serious investigation into the fix. If, that is, Comiskey actually tried to stop the series, as he claimed later. That offseason, Comiskey offered a $20,000 reward to anyone who could provide him hard evidence that there had been a series fix. The sincerity of the offer has been called into doubt. In any case, no money was ever handed out. Going into 1920, nothing had been done about the World Series scandal. Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, Buck Weaver, Fred McMullen, Swede Risberg, Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams were back with the team, seven of the eight conspirators. Only Chick Gandel was not. Gandel had been one of the ringleaders of this scheme, but he didn't re-up his contract with the White Sox and wasn't playing baseball in 1920. The American League race came down to the wire with three teams, the Indians, White Sox and Yankees, battling it out for the pennant. With three games to go, the Sox sat a half game behind Cleveland. That's when their world fell apart. But before we get to that, let's rewind a month and head up to the north side of the city. Before a scheduled game against the Philadelphia Phillies on August 31st, Cubs president William L. Veck got word that Claude Hendricks, that day's starting pitcher, had conspired with gamblers to lose the game. Vec summoned manager Fred Mitchell and told him to switch his starting pitcher. Then he went public with what he had heard. Hendricks never pitched another major league game, and a grand jury was called to investigate the incident, and in the process, expand to examine the bigger picture of gambling scandals in baseball. The investigation went on for weeks. The grand jury heard testimonies from players, owners, and gamblers. Finally, Billy Maharg, one of the principal gamblers in the 1919 case, testified that Eddie Seacott had approached him the previous year about instituting a World Series fix. The next day, both Seacott and Joe Jackson confessed. Immediately, Comiskey suspended the seven implicated players. None of them ever played in the majors again. The White Sox lost two of their last three games, and the Indians took the pennant. Okay, it's been established that the 1919 World Series was not an isolated incident. But if gambling in baseball was so prevalent, why all of a sudden did this occurrence become such a big deal? The mood of the
2: country had shifted. After World War One, America was trying to get back to normalcy, um, and there was a, a huge reform movement going on throughout the country. This is how prohibition was enacted, and you've got women's suffrage, and you've got a lot of different movements politically throughout the country. And baseball was, was no stranger to that. And, you know, baseball has always kind of been a microcosm of what's going on in America. And as you're seeing these efforts to root out corruption in other areas of American society, you're also seeing the same thing happening in baseball as well.
0: After the Black Sox scandal, baseball needed to clean up its image. 1919 had seen record attendance numbers and 1920 dwarfed the previous year. But now the nation's confidence in its favorite sport was shaken. In November of 1920, the owners agreed to abolish the old National Commission and name a single commissioner who would rule all of baseball. They wanted someone who was unaffiliated with the game and could therefore be neutral. For Comiskey, this plan had the added bonus of stripping Ban Johnson of most of his power. The man for the job turned out to be Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the federal judge who had ruled in their favor against the Federal League in 1915. Or, more accurately, had not ruled at all, which still favored organized baseball. The following August, the White Sox were all found not guilty in criminal court, but Landis saw the situation differently. After all, he was a Rabid Cubs fan. He banned all of them from ever playing organized baseball again. The series fix hadn't gone the way any of the players anticipated. After all the rumors of teams getting away with similar plots in the past, they thought there would be no serious consequences. Instead, the Black Sox were all out of the game, and most had not received nearly the payoff that they had been promised. Until the day he died, Buck Weaver avowed that he had not agreed to the fix, taken any money, or intentionally played poorly. But he, like the rest, was banned for life. The 1921 baseball season was a disaster in Chicago. The Cubs finished with their worst record in 20 years. The White Sox, having had nearly their entire lineup revamped, had their worst season ever. Attendance was way down on both sides of town, and it was clear that the city's faith in the sport had been weakened. The world and the sports landscape had changed dramatically since the end of World War I. Nobody played postseason City Series anymore. It had been five years since one had been staged in Chicago. Fans weren't clamoring to see the two bottom feeders go head-to-head. The tradition was effectively dead. As the 21 season wound down, several players began making plans to go hunting or barnstorming as soon as the season ended. Then on September 10th, the phone rang in Charles Comiskey's office. It was Cubs president Bill Vack. He had a proposal to reinvigorate the city's interest in baseball. The Cubs had lost the most recent City series after all. It was their turn to challenge. Comiskey accepted. All players on both teams canceled their plans and vowed to be ready for the October Clash. The stage was set for the 11th Chicago City Series. Next week. Both teams go years without contending as Chicago baseball hits its low point and everybody seems to have stopped caring. No, wait. I want you to listen. The 1920s were a great decade for Chicago baseball. Be prepared to meet some of the wonderful characters who suited up and played a major role in the City Series. And the Cubs make a hire that forever changes the team and the game of baseball. I'll talk to you next week on Chicago's Civil War.